Well, hey, Providence Road. It is, it is really, really good to see y'all. Um, if you're new to Prov Road, or if you're old and just a jerk, uh, my name is Chris. Used to be one of the pastors here. It's good to be home. Um, so yeah, like, uh, like Jeremy said, about a, about a year ago, just under a year ago, we moved uh, to Alabama, and we're doing some training at a Acts 29 church in Huntsville these days, and we are about two months away from planting Prov Road's first daughter church in Auburn, Alabama. Yeah. Um, in large part because of our time here, uh, working with OU students, um, we are convinced that churches in college towns are incredibly strategic for the kingdom, and they are also incredibly under-resourced, so we're heading to another college town to plant what we're going to end up calling Union Church about a mile from the Auburn campus. So we're uh, incredibly excited about that. And by excited, I mean terrified. Uh, it, is, it is abundantly clear that we have bitten off way more than we can chew. So um, one, of the, one of the things we feel called to tackle is this issue of racial reconciliation. And uh, as you might imagine, multi-ethnic, multicultural churches, while normative, in the New Testament is not exactly normative in East Alabama. Um, uh, to quote Abraham Lincoln, who was actually quoting Jesus, um, <laughs> a house divided against itself cannot stand. And that is the context that we're walking into in Alabama. Um, it is still an incredibly segregated place uh, along racial lines. And the church... Um, is just as segregated, and that is unacceptable. And so we're going to go start some new ones. Um, the problem is I don't know how to do that. So, and uh, not a lot of people have figured it out yet. So um, we're going to go try. We're going to go try. So um, we covet your prayers and your financial support um, as we get our church off the ground. Many of you, many of you have been incredibly generous to us already, and we can't even express. Uh, how much that means to us. It's, um, it's huge. So, uh, so tonight at, uh, at 6 here in the building, if you want to come learn more about what we got going on, and uh, we're going to tell some stories about our time in Huntsville, share some of the vision about what, what we hope to do in Auburn and uh, some long-term stuff. So, and mostly if you just want coffee and dessert and want to have free Wi-Fi or whatever, just come hang out. So um, we'll be, we're excited to see everybody tonight. So uh, be, be here for part of that. Um, Incredibly, incredibly honored to be back uh, as part of the grand opening of this thing. What is this? Uh, I feel, I was, telling, I was telling my wife, I feel a little bit, a little bit like Moses of like, uh, I wandered around with you knuckleheads for like five or six years. And as soon as we're out of the picture, y'all just stroll right in the promised land. Like that's <laughs> classy, classy move, Prop Road. So that's kind of where we're at this morning, but uh, trying not to be bitter about that. Uh, but this is, uh, this is amazing. Like I was here for the very early, early, early planning stages of this building was sitting around the table with some elders looking at schematics going, I don't know, I'm not going to be here. So <laughs> looks good guys. And then I bounced. So, um, anyway, uh, super, super honored to be with you today to kind of officially kind of open this building. This is, this is awesome. So, um, if you have a Bible, 
um, go ahead and go to Galatians chapter 5. That's where we'll begin today. And while you're turning there, uh, I want to make one thing absolutely clear. And that is, we did not leave Providence Road to go plant a church. We were sent to go plant a church. And that makes all the difference in the world. Okay? So that's kind of where we're going to start this morning. Um, kind of as this, this, this building launches us into a new season of ministry for Prov Road, um, I just want to remind us of a few basic truths. Um, in many people's minds, uh, the church, especially the, the American church, um, is kind of can be understood like a, like a cruise ship. Um, it's kind of this, this floating buffet where people go to be entertained. And so you can pick and choose um, the music you like, the, the kids' ministry you like, the coffee you like, the preaching, whatever, right? And uh, the church is, is, is built on, on the, the preferences of the consumer base, okay? And as a result, these, these cruise ship Christians are... Uh, are spiritually fat and drunk all the time and uh, aren't getting much done. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. You're having a blast. You're having an absolute blast. It's just not we're making a ton of headway at, you know, in the Great Commission. So that's a problem. Um, there, there are also what I would call battleship churches. Um, and this is where the mission of God is definitely a priority, uh, but it's limited to the professionals. Okay, so... Um, the church body is really just expected to, to sit and attend and to give towards the ministry of, of the professional clergy as they go out and actually do ministry. And as you might imagine, when, when only a handful of people are quote-unquote qualified to, to do ministry, not much gets done either. And usually these ministers end up getting really burnt out, and the church body um, tend to leave mostly out of boredom. They're just, they're not asked to do anything. Um, and, there's, and there's quite a bit of research to back this up. There's a, a, a LifeWay study I came across last week that says in the next five years, somewhere in the neighborhood of 55,000 churches will shut their doors. That's just in, in the United States. 55,000 churches are going to shut down over the next five years. Um, so just as a, as a point of comparison, in the year 1900, in the year 1900, there were 28 churches for every 10,000 Americans. Today, as we sit here, there are less than 11. And there's, there's no data that at least I have found that suggests that trajectory won't continue outside of a huge movement of the Holy Spirit. Um, so, given this reality that many churches are unwilling or ill-equipped to, to effectively make disciples in this new environment. Um, I like to suggest another metaphor for, for a different kind of a church that I think is more, I think is more biblical. I think it's more effective. Um, and that is that we need churches that function like aircraft carriers. Okay? So listen, I'm not trying to go all World War II history on you. Okay? I'm just... Um, here's, here's, here's what I mean. This, uh, this building... Okay, the, the, these 14,000 square feet on the corner of Crawford and Comanche. Okay, this, this is not for us. 
This, this is not for us to sit back and enjoy our, our personal preferences. Um, uh, this, is, this, is, this cannot be a fortress where we hide out from the unbelieving world out there where who, who officially um, um, they're going to more and more and more find our beliefs to be outdated and offensive. Um, it's, it is my prayer and has been my prayer for some time that this church and in particular this building will be, will be an aircraft carrier that equips people here so that they can be sent out, okay? That's what I'm talking about. Um, What goes on in this building, may it result in sending out people to a world that will statistically never step foot in here. That's what this building needs to be about. not, Not everybody will be trained to plant churches in the SEC, for example. Um, but we're all intentionally sent. That's, that's what being a Christian is. You, Spurgeon used to say, you're either a missionary or you're an imposter, but there's no Christian just hanging out. That's not a thing. We're all missionaries. Right? So we, we're going to gather in this place as family, and then we're going to scatter from this place as missionaries. That's it. Um, so I... Uh, I, my hope is that this morning that this sermon will act as the, um, the ceremonial bottle of champagne, right? That's like broken over the bow of a, of the, of a newly commissioned aircraft carrier uh, as, as she is sent out onto a new, new mission. All right, that's what I want out of this morning, okay? So let's, uh, let's pray to that end, and then we'll, we'll jump into Galatians 5. Father, thank you for this church, and uh, thank you for what it's meant to me and my family, and uh, and I pray that this this church will be um, will be an aircraft carrier uh, that that goes into every uh, neighborhood and every dorm and every coffee shop and every business in Norman, and um, that, uh, that that there would be this saturation of gospel because of just regular missionaries from Prov Road. Uh, so God, uh, take what little we have. Take, take, uh, take this sermon, take this building, and none of it is enough. Um, but like bread and, and, uh, and fish, would you just multiply it to, to feed people? Uh, God, that's our prayer this morning. Uh, we love you. It's in your good name we pray. Amen. All right. Galatians chapter 5. Um, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, and he is, uh, to put it mildly, frustrated that they have abandoned the gospel and started believing lies. And so in verse 6 of chapter 5, he writes this incredibly comprehensive summary of what true Christianity really is. Okay, um, So let's read uh, Galatians 5, 6. All right, verse 6 says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So Paul's saying at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. That's it. Everything else is secondary. At the end of the day, this is all that matters. 
So, so legitimate salvation, true Christianity, has two components. Faith and love. Okay? Faith is the foundation of Christianity. Always. And love is the result of Christianity. Always. If one of those things gets messed up, that's not Christian. It's faith and love. Always. Um, I think this is why Paul is so mad in chapter 3. He says, you, you, you foolish Galatians. Who, who tricked you into thinking that you could change this? So, so part one, let's look, at, let's look at the faith component, okay? Faith. Faith, faith in what? Uh, What's well, clear in verse, in verse 6 that, it, that we're talking about faith in Christ Jesus. So, so when Paul says faith in Jesus, what does he mean? Um, okay, so get, get ready for this. This, is a little, this gets a little heady, but stick with me. Um, what Paul means is that faith is the, is the passive acceptance of an external righteousness. Okay? It's the passive acceptance of an external righteousness. So let's, let's unpack that for a minute. Faith is the acknowledgement that you are incapable of in any way creating a resume that is any way impressive to God. Can't be done. Um, it is the admission that you are simply not good enough. Okay? Whatever you got going on, it's not good enough uh, uh, to impress a perfect and holy God. So, so faith is the admission of that fact, but... but in addition, in addition to that, it is the confidence that Jesus is good enough. And that Jesus has permanently attached you to himself. And now because of that relationship, because of that bond, because of that union... His righteousness is now yours. His victory is now your victory. His status before the Father is now your status before the Father. That is Christian faith. Now, virtually, uh, virtually every New Testament point has an Old Testament illustration to go with it. Okay? So, think back with me to David and Goliath. Right? Oldie but a goodie. Uh, this is in uh, 1 Samuel 17. You don't need to go there, but uh, that's where this story is. So we, fit, we see in 1 Samuel 17 that there are two warring nations. You have the Israelites on this side of the valley. You have the Philistines on this side. And now there is a custom at this time that uh, instead of both armies uh, charging and slaughtering everyone and knowing getting out alive, they would, uh, they would take um, what they would call champions, right? So they would take one representative warrior from each side and they would let them fight and the winner of this individual battle would be credited back to the respective armies okay it's actually pretty uh, civil if you think about it um, so for 40 days every morning and every night Goliath who is a literal giant not exactly sure 
how tall he is, but he is head and shoulders taller than an average man. He is a, a seasoned soldier. My buddies out in West Texas would say, this is a bad motor scooter, right? You do, you do not want to jack with Goliath. Um, he walks out every morning and every night for 40 days, and he talks junk to Israel. He taunts Israel. And in response, crickets. Israel does nothing. They, they cower in the corner, and no one stands up to Goliath. No one is big enough or brave enough to fight the giant, not even, not even the king. Uh, no one is righteous enough to fight for Israel. And in steps David, who at this point is a teenage shepherd boy who is not even really supposed to be there. He's only at the front lines of the battle because he's, he's running errands for his dad. He's literally delivering snacks to his older brothers who are in the army. Um, and he hears this giant Philistine defying the God of Israel. And so this, this plucky high school kid's like, no, hold on. We're just going to sit there and let this big, tall, giraffe-looking joker talk about our God like that? Like, what are we going to do about this? And his older brother say, shut up, man. You don't know what we got going on here. We, this is high-level military strategy. This involves geopolitical maneuvering. Like, shut up, shepherd boy. And David's like, whatever. I've killed bears. I've killed lions. I'll take care of this joker. Y'all are a bunch of pansies. That's a uh, paraphrase. Um, so, so he grabs some rocks, heads out toward the giant. This, this is my favorite part of this whole story. Absolute favorite part of this story. Uh, this high school kid walks up to a giant who is a professional murderer, right? We understand this. A giant man who has devoted his life to murdering smaller men. That's Goliath. He walks up to him and he starts talking junk back. I love that. I want to play football with this guy, okay? And David says, hey, tall boy. This is what's going to happen, all right? I'm going to kill you. I'm going to let the birds and the beasts of the fields start eating your body. I'm going to come over. I'm going to cut your head off, and I'm going to take you back to Jerusalem. And then he goes and does it. He does it. The high school kid kills the giant, and Israel wins the war. This is David and Goliath. I think this story is usually told as if we are David and we need to slay the giants in our lives. The giant of fear, the giant of anger, the giant of addiction. But if I think, if we're going to understand the story correctly, we need to see ourselves as Israel, not David. Because we are credited with a victory that we did nothing to earn. Everything that is good about your salvation was based on the work of one righteous man. Guys, David and Goliath is a story about faith in Jesus. The passive acceptance of an external righteousness, okay? 
So this faith that Jesus saves us based on his work, not ours, um, that he deeply, deeply loves us despite our many flaws and shortcomings, this, this forms a, a theological framework. It forms a sort of, a, a sort of theological foundation for us. And, that, and now we, we operate in this new orbit where you are aware of this undeserved grace in your life. You, your eyes are open to the fact that you have nothing to offer. In fact, if you got what you deserved, you would burn in eternal hell. And so this is a much better gig, okay? Your eyes are open to that fact, okay? So, so the way this works is you're... you're this faith is understood in your head, this, this cognitive knowledge. And when you come to the realization that you're a jerk and you deserve to, to die, but a, a merciful God has been very, very gentle and patient and sweet with you, that softens your heart. How are you going to be proud when, when everything you own has been given to you? Where does arrogance come from? if you understand the gospel. So this cognitive knowledge makes its way to your heart. It melts your heart. And then what do you do when you have a melted heart? You, you serve people, right? When you understand that everything you have is a gift from you, you know what you want to do? You want to get kids in Norman lunch. That's what Christians do, okay? Put it another way. This vertical love that comes down to you from the Father, it finds horizontal outlets to love brothers and sisters. That's, that's all Christianity is. Why are we making it more complicated than this? That's all it is. It is a vertical love finding its expression in horizontal outlets. So what Paul is saying is that this is the natural progression of understanding the gospel. I am loved by the Father, therefore I will go love my brothers and sisters. And Paul is, is simply echoing Jesus here. This isn't a new thought. Um, in Luke 10, we see that Jesus says that basically an accurate summary of the entire Bible is basically to love God with your entire heart and, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? Okay. So this begs the question, what, is this, what does this horizontal love look like? And there are many examples of love in the Bible, but I want to look at one in particular because like David and Goliath, I believe this works on, on multiple levels. So turn with me to Hosea chapter 3. Hosea chapter 3. So here's, here's what's going on in Hosea. Um, Hosea is a prophet. He's a preacher. And God says to Hosea, I am going to show you what my love is like so that you can clearly communicate that to the people of Israel. And Hosea, being a good prophet, says, all right, that sounds good. Let's do it. So God says, all right, here's what I want. I want you, prophet, to go marry a prostitute. I want you to enter into an exclusive intimate covenant with her 
I want you to take care of her. I want you to have kids with her. I want you to build a home with her. And she will cheat on you constantly. I want you to take good care of her. And every single day, she is going to leave you and go sleep with other guys. So by the beginning of chapter 3 in Hosea, I have to believe that Hosea has had enough. He's like, listen, I'm, uh, I'm done. I, I've gone along with this weird allegorical love metaphor thing, but this, I'm done. I'm tired. I have a, I'm a prophet of God. I have a reputation to maintain. Um, I'm tired of putting my heart out there every single week only for it to be broken again and again and again. And this is, this is what God says in response. Chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again. Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I also will be with you. So God says to this broken-hearted preacher, go again. Go again. And Hosea does. And he goes and he finds his wife who is back in her old lifestyle, being trafficked and pimped by some guy. And Hosea pays for her. Now at this, at this time, the, the going rate for a prostitute would have been 30 shekels. But the Bible says that Hosea didn't pay 30 shekels. It says he paid 15 shekels plus a, plus a certain amount of barley. And this, this weird little detail means that Hosea probably paid everything he had and then had to throw in his car to go get his wife back. So God says, that is what love looks like. It costs something. Love, like real legitimate love, is disadvantaging yourself to advance somebody else. It is extravagant. It is costly. It is always, always, always sacrificial. And listen, Christian love is, is weird. It's a strange thing. It looks strange because this is not how the world operates. It's not. This is weird. Preachers marrying prostitutes is weird. It is objectively, objectively weird. 
fostering kids you know to have behavioral issues is objectively weird. Alabama churches that have white people and black people in it is weird. Holding your drunk roommate's hair so that she can vomit in your bathroom is weird. But God sending his perfect son to pay for sins that he did not commit, that's weird. Do you see, do you see that this is our faith being expressed in love? That's what this is. John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love. Not Facebook arguments. Not even theologically accurate Facebook arguments. Love is what we're after. Uh, listen, I'm, 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 this is my church, and I'm speaking to, specifically to my tribe, okay? This is the, the Reformed Acts 29 complementarian tribe, Okay? If you can write a perfectly exegeted position paper on complementary gender roles, but you're too big time to clean up around this building or to serve kids or work in the parking lot, then you are what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13 is freaking annoying. It's another paraphrase. We should be known for our love more than our theology. Because if we have orthodox theology, it will always lead to sacrificial love. These are not in conflict with one another. It is the result of legitimate theology, always. And listen, justice is what love looks like in public. Okay? So not only should we take good care of one another, but we should also care for those outside of these walls who don't have the power or the voice to advocate for themselves. That is the job of the church. Um, CJ and I were, were talking on the trip down here uh, about our babies who are getting to not be babies anymore. We got a one-year-old and a three-year-old. How weird is that? Um, but uh, Kara Jane's brother and sister-in-law are having a baby any day now like they're like their day it was like six days ago or something so literally any minute now they could be having a baby so we've been talking babies we're not pregnant please <laughs> please lord um <laughs> our plate is full um but we were what well, we were talking about when we were you know when we were in the hospital and we're talking contractions and labor and needles and uh all this stuff and i just try not to pass out um but I, I do not think that there is a better picture of sacrificial love than a mom in labor. Just 
CJ had spent nine months carrying these kids. And her body was doing some things that it had never done before. Okay? And um, at the end of this long process, we're, we're pushing and we're pushing and we're pushing. And she is physically and emotionally exhausted. And there's this nurse saying, go again. Go again. You know, push again. That's what love looks like. It's going again and going again and going again, even though you know this little person is going to be loud and it's going to be messy and has access to break your heart like no one else. That's love. It's going again and going again and going again. Is that not what our Father has done for us? When you and I totally abandoned him and started chasing our own stuff, and he said, I'm still coming. I'm still coming. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to come again, and I'm going to come again, and I'm going to come again, and I'm going to come again. Can we, can we do no less with our neighbors? So may that be the reputation of Providence Road in this city that because of our faith, because of our faith, we're the people that go again and go again and go again and just labor in this never-ending mission of loving people because of our faith. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, I pray that more than anything else that this church would have a, a reputation of love and a love that is so strange that it makes the outside world scratch their heads. And um, God, would you just do big, unexplainable things through, through this church on the corner of Crawford and Comanche. Um, God, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.